a stepchild. Blacks and beans. The worst boy you ever seen. Blacks and beans. A woman in a castle. Blacks and beans. Who's married to a king. Blacks and beans. But succession to a stepchild. Blacks and beans. It's a troublesome thing. Blacks and beans. The woman's got her own boy. Blacks and beans. He can bring the realm joy. Blacks and beans. If he could only get some. Blacks and beans. Of that seven realms bling. Blacks and beans. Consensual recordings. <laughs> we had consensual recording, people. <laughs> we did. <laughs> Welcome to Before the Dragon Podcast, where we found out this week that 9.3 million of you didn't care whether the episode leaked or not. You went ahead and watched it live all throughout the first night of its airing. 9.3 million people of you decided to see a finale. That's the most people who saw a finale. Since the Game of Thrones series finale, at least for HBO, uh, which beat it by a whole bunch. It was something like 19 million for that one. But not bad for a season finale. This one entitled The Black Queen, written by Ryan Condal, the showrunner, and directed by Greg Yatanis, who did a marvelous job, I thought. And, folks, Holly is dead. She's not here. Holly is dead. Actually, it's her car that's dead. She couldn't make the recording, but she promised to send along some three words or some brothel mates if she doesn't have to negotiate getting her car towed uh, with her phone or something like that. But we apologize that she's not here. John, on the other hand, is not dead. John is here, even though he was supposed to be dead, uh, meaning that he was going to be recording a episode with his other podcast the wicked wild please check it out on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts especially this week halloween week because it is a great week to catch up on creepy shows and that's one of the things that well wicked wild podcast does exceptionally well having a little f- fun go at some horror flicks that you probably know some of them you might not know uh, it depends on how old you are, I suppose. But I love, I love the podcast. So be sure to check it out. Kelly is with us, even though she's not with us right now. Kelly is with us. There she is. She's poked up out of the thin air, uh, much like the mage that she is. Oh, wait, that's the wrong series. Uh, what are you? So you're some kind of, you're not a wizard. That's the wrong series. I'm still stuck in Lord of the Rings mode from last week. Uh, what kind of a magic wielder are you, Kelly? <laughs> I am obviously Rhaenyra just appearing on her dragon yes, <laughs> over the steps. Always, always at, uh, always at, at uh, the steps on Dragonstone. I, by the way, in case you haven't noticed, because it is Halloween week, am Amond Valarian strong. 
that is who I am. You can see I have an eye patch on. I have my dreads, my Valarian dreads, and of course my hair is black, which means that I'm a strong, I'm not a trueborn Valarian, but who's counting? Uh, at any rate, we are going to be talking about this episode, and I just wanted to thank everybody right up front for supporting this podcast. We've grown astronomically over the last couple of weeks. Uh, it's been pretty remarkable, although I must say, Kelly, I am a little angry at you. You got more podcast downloads last week on your Thursday podcast than I did on my Wednesday podcast. So uh, I guess the uh, Kelly's Dragons podcast has officially launched. You'll be leaving us soon, which means John will be leaving you because John will only leave you because Holly will follow you. And John realizes that Holly is always right once she comes back from the dead. Um, still have Susan with us, though. Susan is with us and she's smarter than all of the rest of us. That's the important thing to remember there is that no matter what comes out of my mouth, uh, Susan's going to be smarter. That's not hard to do. That's not much of a bar to cross, is it, Susan? know about that matt okay well susan's smarter than all the rest of us so susan why don't we start with you with your rating for this season finale of house of the dragon oh wow um <laughs> this is hard i held off all season long on giving anything a 10 because i kept thinking there's probably going to be one episode that is just so superior to everything else that i want to save that 10 for that um and i love this episode but i don't know if i can say that it was that much superior to and to some of the other ones that i absolutely love too so i feel that it'd be unfair for me to give it a 10 just because i had reserved the 10 so i'm gonna go ahead and give it a 9.9 .9. and i'm not deducting anything for any particular reason just because you're just still waiting on the 10 well, I just because I think it will, it's only fair in relation to the ratings I gave the other ones. Very good, Kelly. Uh, since you are not dead, uh, how about you? Did you happen to rate this episode on a scale of one to ten as well? Uh, I did, and I I am afraid to go back and like look at like how I rated every episode up till now because I I doubt it would remain like the same scale. But because. Um, I love this episode. I would give it a nine, uh, solid and like strong. It was great. Uh, but like some episodes I rated higher, I doubt were actually better than this. I was just so hyped. <laughs> so we might have to do like a review <laughs> and re-rate re them someday. But um, I it was I walked out of this one feeling like it was a good nine. Um, there were some parts that I felt like moved super fast and it was hard to keep up with. So um and there were a lot of new characters that I, I had to like go back and figure out who who was talking and what was going on. So there was some of it that was dense, and I, I like that. But on a first watch, it's hard to walk out of that feeling excited, you know. So anyway, it was good. And uh, <laughs> for a season finale, um, I thought it was great for a season finale. I don't know if that's a, in in the rating or not, or it's just a solid episode. But as a season finale, it was great. Uh, as an episode, it was a you know. I mean, all of my ratings have been between eight and 10. So I can't really say it was, you know, uh, it was an average episode for, for this season, which has have all been great. <laughs> In the history of this podcast, I think I've only rated one episode below a seven. So right. uh, that's that's the way that that goes. And you know which episode that was, or at least my panel knows which episode it was that I would have rated below that. 
Uh, at any rate, uh, let's get to the final rating. The other person who you hear on the airwaves all the time on the Wicked Wild podcast, John, what was your rating for this finale episode? It's funny. In, in my anticipation of not being here, I gave it a 9 out of 10. A upon rewatch, I, I have to bump it up to at least like a 9.4. Like this was really, really good. It's not like Susan said, it's not 10. It's 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 such a somber and, and very like self-serious and, and not that there's anything wrong with that. But I mean, there's like zero humor, zero like and there's no levity in it. Not that that's bad. I mean, this is a very serious episode and serious topics, but it there's just those moments with Tyrion we get in the last series where he'd have like have a joke it was something to break the tension a little bit and mm -hmm. kind of create let almost it it created the a lot of the big moments to be really big and the small moments to be small and it just kind of the really tense it just made things that much better so we're for me it was missing just a little bit of that but um i think we might get a little bit of that more as the seasons go on i'm still not seeing how they're going to wrap this up in four seasons is that what they've committed to um i four or five i can't remember what the full full number was yeah but yeah where this ends i thought we were gonna get like just a little bit further into the story mm -hmm. but um a lot of cool stuff um lot to talk about in this one um it's mostly gonna be just me loving on a lot of stuff for the most part and there's like one aspect at the very end where i have some surprising thoughts probably to myself so okay well there's nothing like surprising yourself on a podcast i do want to approach this subject before we move into the music and that is uh upon re-watching this and I, I think this was brought up at least i first heard it by the ringer podcast uh by uh joanna robinson uh who does the uh, the ringer house of the dragon podcast i want to credit her properly but it really got me to thinking about it and i really agree with this I no longer look at this single episode as the season finale. Instead, if you look at the pattern of the way Game of Thrones was set up, and perhaps this is what Ryan and Miguel were going for all along throughout the season, even though they were, didn't really imply that as much. But if you think of the eighth episode where Viserys dies as the penultimate episode, then you have the parallels of Ned Stark and all of that and how big things happen in the episode nines. And then you think of episodes nine and 10 in this season of being, you know, two parts of the same finale, just the two different sides of the story. Now, could they have intercut them? You know, maybe they did it purposely for this way to serve in that purpose. But I was wondering if anybody else was if you look at the two episodes as a huge two hour finale, a little over two hours, then does it change your perspective on the way the season ended as opposed to, I've heard a lot of complaints about, well, we just focused on this one thing. It didn't feel like it, it really resolved anything or anything like that. For me, emotionally, you know, I love a good emotional cliffhanger seeing uh, Rhaenyra just completely unravel in front of our eyes in that last scene. But the, uh kelly let me turn to you first what did you think if you kind of look at these two episodes the green council and the black queen working together as one singular finale does that help 
strengthen the season or does it make it weaker? I'd, I'd like them being separate. Like I was trying to picture how, if we had, um, so there's uh, Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons and, and they've there's two separate books. And at one point somebody interwove them together. And I think that that worked great. Um, I can't see like the Rhaenyra stillbirth scene interwoven into, mm. oh, we're on the right. hunt for a- for Aegon in King's Landing at a brothel scene and that having the same impact. So like there's some scenes that I think wouldn't have worked interweaving it with this uh, with the two episodes. So I actually really prefer this 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 way of keeping them separate uh, because of the weight that I think the way the way it was affecting both women, uh, both queens, you know, um, separately. I liked it better this way, um, but I did like the Ned Stark um, Viserys comparison, and especially if you look at it as like the Ned Stark death being so abrupt and surprising and and out of nowhere, and then the Viserys death taking so long, and right. we kept going, this guy is still alive every episode, and then finally he died, and it was so pe- like peaceful, you know, as much as it could be, but it was a you know, in his own bed kind of death. And it was kind of like a finally <laughs> moment as opposed yeah. to a, what did he just do moment? So, yeah. uh, <laughs> but I, as far as the episodes go, I like that format idea, but I like the, keeping them separate, but looking at, at it as um, maybe one big um, storyline part. Yeah. Like a two-parter, okay. but keep the scene separate. Mm-hmm. How about you, John? I I agree with Kelly and then no I didn't lose anything this week she she's always right as usual but in this way I totally agree with her I don't it, even sequentially I mean having Maylie's and um take uh, Rainey's out, out of there it the new the the timing and sequencing I don't think you could interweave them and it make any sense I mean mm-hmm. if I were HBO I would have said you know we are just going to do a a double banger and we're going to put them together and go and just had a big two hour finale. It would have probably been one of the biggest news stories to come out of HBO. They wouldn't have had a problem with the league, which I heard about, but I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm no urgent need to see this before it's intended. Not that I want to help HBO with the ratings. I already pay the money, but it's just, that's, I think a two hour finale would have set a ton. I think it would have set records. It would have been a huge story especially a big surprise, but hey. Yeah. Susan, final thought on this. I agree with uh, both uh, John and Kelly. So <laughs> I really don't have anything to add. I agree with the, with the idea that it'd be good to have like maybe the two back to back, but they, they were uh, very um, thematically self-contained. Um, I, I think it worked really well rather than trying to, you know, intercut. Well, uh, Susan is smarter than you are. And so, therefore, uh, Susan is correct. I agree with Susan. Uh, therefore, that means that Kelly is always right, just as John said, although John also always says that Holly is always right. But unfortunately, Holly is always dead. So I'm sure that if she could come back from the grave, she would totally agree uh, with the rest of us as far as the, the perspective on the finale. But let's talk about something that I'm actually good at. Let's talk about some music here. Uh, there were some things that were in this episode that were just too emotional for me to even figure out how to play on the piano. There were some things that were uh, so amazing that I couldn't wait to get to a piano, not even like right after my initial reaction. I had to record my music analysis. It's been, I was up all night that night uh, doing all kinds of things, running back and forth through the piano and, and doing this and that. So here's what you get. You get 15 minutes, actually closer to 16 minutes, of me rambling about music in the finale. So 
uh, we'll be back with the Wheel of Topics right after that. So for this week's music episode, I'm going to concentrate mostly on one central part of the episode, but I do want to touch on a couple of other things and a couple of the things I think even just figuring out how to play them on the piano would make me emotional all over again. I am recording this on the same night that the episode first aired and I am just shortly after I recorded my initial reaction. And I don't think I'm in a mental space to actually talk about some of this music uh, because I'll just get overwhelmed with emotion. But there is one thing uh, that was just horrific for me and made me feel terrible, but I, I feel like it does need to be addressed. And that is the music that accompanied up to the cremation scene. Uh there was a whole bunch of music in there that was very emotional. Some of it, Tamberly was interesting. I think he actually used bells and pianos when the blood actually poured out of her. Uh, I'm not really talking about that. I'm talking about the aftermath where Damon comes in and he sees her still holding the, uh, the stillborn child and sees her. We then cut to her preparing the child for cremation. Um, that music was very emotional. I don't want to break it down because uh, I don't think we'll ever hear it again. If we do uh, at some point in a future season, then I will break it down. Then I, I just thought that it was noteworthy because of the way that the chords are played. Also the way that the chords are harmonically minor. Uh, but for some reason it really resonated the sadness in that scene and made me more emotional than, than evidently some people were about it. I, it, to me, it just horrified me and it wasn't quite as horrifying as the Emma scene at the beginning of the season. Um, but again, they like to do these little bookends of things. And so you have Emma in the first episode and, uh, Rhaenyra in this episode and emotionally just think about how much that all of that from her past and everything that she's just learned how that's weighing on her during this and yet her insistence to wrap the child herself anyway I, I will get emotional if I keep talking about it so just so you know go back and listen to this in the episode uh, but there, here's a very poor piano version of it Another piece uh, that was very sad that I don't really want to uh, play for you this time around, but I, I do want to talk about, and that's the very last sequence when Damon, again, is entering a room, uh, but this time is to tell her that her son, Lucaris, is dead. And that theme was actually part from, actually, the, the very first episode of the series, it's a theme for Rhaenyra, which I originally thought was for her and Alicent, but it starts at the carriage going into King's Landing and kind of in through town before they actually get to the Red Keep. And then we heard it again when 
Rhaenyra had just given birth to the youngest strong boy and was having to bring it to Alicent, uh, a very much slower version. And we get that kind of slower version here, but much more emotional done the way that it is done and with the really ethereal yet very minor chords underneath it. Uh, really, the timbres helped a lot with the emotion of that as Damon is slowly walking towards her and then you see her get the news. One interesting thing that happens with that at the end is that Ramin goes back to the old Game of Thrones motif, the dun 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 dun, and as but he's doing it slowly, and with each motion of the notes, the chords change, and it's almost like you can feel the chords splitting apart, becoming more dissonant. That effect is simply to show how the last few days is starting to unravel Rhaenyra. I said that in my initial reaction as well, how she, by the end, by the time she turns around and we see that last shot, she looks like everything is just spiraling out of control. And it, of course, that's totally understandable. She's had a heck of a bad week, right? But uh, it's interesting that as that dissonance happens, the chords start to sound more and more like they don't fit anything. It, um, I don't want to say it equates to madness, but it certainly equates to trauma in a lot of ways. Yet there is one melody on the top of that. As it changes from Rhaenyra's melody, it changes to the Dragon Connection theme melody. That's a theme that we've talked about so many times. You're probably sick of me here talking about it. Uh, all throughout the Game of Thrones seasons, it was associated with uh, Daenerys and her connections to the dragons and here in this season of House of the Dragon it's become more about the Targaryens themselves um, although it's still used for the connection of the dragon but you just hear that da da ya da 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 ya da you hear that melody going on as that Game of Thrones motif is underneath it. And normally when we hear that, it's so nice and the way they work together and everything. But here, because he is stretching the chords out, he's adding more dissonances with each chord. And it just makes it feel like everything is falling apart. Really wonderfully done. But again, pretty emotional for me. And I couldn't duplicate that on the piano anyway, so I'm not going to try. So the next part that I want to talk about is really the one moment of hope uh, throughout the entirety of the episode, for me anyway, and that uh, was when Eric brings the crown to Rhaenyra and Damon uh, crowns her queen right there and everybody bows to her. That whole sequence was amazing and it was primarily based on the prince that was promised theme the one that we heard on the piano in the first episode when Viserys was telling her about the prophecy and then we see her going through while all of the lords, you know, proclaim their obedience to his ruling and they pledge their loyalty to her. So what happens with it this time around is when we first hear, see the crown uh, and Eric produces it, we hear just the melody that we really know with it. And the prince that was promised actually has two major parts to it. If you listen to the entire recording 
that Ramin released right before the beginning of the season. But we hear the part that we've heard most this season, uh, just played by, I think, a solo string uh, as it's presented. Uh, I'm talking about this. So then Damon takes the crown and he looks at Rhaenyra. And as he does this, we hear a theme that has been associated mostly with Rhaenyra. It's almost like we kind of break away from the prince that was promised. And we go back into this theme for Rhaenyra that we actually heard the first time in episode two when she came to Dragonstone uh, to tell Damon to give back the egg. Right. Uh and it's been used many times for Rhaenyra, especially when she was younger. And we've heard it a couple of times. I think it was at uh, Lena's funeral that we heard it as well. But it's done with voices, and it just outlines a minor chord, basically. Uh, what Ramin did here, though, was very interesting harmonically. He placed new chords underneath it so that that melody didn't feel minor anymore. Instead, it felt major. And the reason is, is because the notes underneath it, because of where he started, because we always have to have a point of reference where something starts, made those melody notes sound like the outlining of a major seven chord rather than just a straight minor chord than like we're used to. And so that is what helped add just a slight element of lighterness or hope i would say as opposed to the uh theme being playful or uh, mischievous actually uh, which is the way that you mostly associate that with some of the scenes with rhaenyra both younger and older so this gives it a whole new context and gives the whole scene hope as he place brings the crown to her and then ultimately puts it on her head And the final part of this theme is the part that excited me the most because the Prince that was promised theme as it was released had two main parts to it. And we've heard very little of the second part. We've heard a lot of the first part, but not very much of the second part. And I never really broke this theme down because I actually did an initial reaction to the recording, which you can only get in the audio podcast form, or I think I released the video on Twitter uh, but YouTube has rules about, you know, whether you can use people's recordings or not naturally. And I want to respect the artist positions, uh, even though I don't think they run any ads on my YouTube. I still had to uh, obey the rule that I couldn't put it up. It would have gotten a copyright flag right off the bat. So I don't want to do I didn't want to do that. And I want to respect Ramin's work. But if you really want to do some digging, just look before season one started and either through my Twitter or you can go through the audio podcasts and you can hear my reaction to it. Um, but I've never really talked about this part of the theme before in our regular coverage. It's a very beautiful melody. And in some ways, Ramin changed the melody just a little bit. Uh, he made it so that the melody would stretch higher in pitch as the the chords moved on underneath uh this of course 
melodic shape, when something goes higher, you get a higher sense of purpose. And I love that they did that. Plus, he put all major chords underneath this part of the theme, which the, in the original thing, it actually has a lot of major chords in it. So that's not that much of a deviation. But the fact that he persisted with the major chords gives a real feeling of hope. I mean, Rhaenyra is in the middle of one of the worst days of her life. She's lost her father. She's lost her baby. She's putting her baby. She's cremating her baby. And then here comes Sir Eric with this crown. And now everybody is starting to be loyal to her. They're kneeling to her as queen. So it is the one true glimmer of hope in this particular episode. Uh, let me play it for you, and then I'll talk about it a little bit more. So could you hear how the melody goes down and up and down and up, but each time it gets to its highest point in each little phrase, it actually is a little higher than it was before. And that's what I mean by the overall melodic shape. The overall melodic shape is climbing. And what that does is it adds purpose. It adds uh, not necessarily happiness, but it, it adds a sense of righteousness. And I love that this part of the theme was pretty much saved for most of the season. You may have heard little quotes of it in different parts of different episodes, but nothing that made it so pronounced as this. And I think it's really important that Ramin brought that theme back around. Once again, we're talking about bookends uh, that everybody likes to do. And uh, Ramin did not resist that urge this time around either i like it but one of the things that it, it does is it places the importance on her being queen at her as the heir viserys made her the heir told her the secret and this song this theme is about the secret we find out later on in the episode damon didn't even know about this prophecy so in that moment, it was very important to show that she not just representing her as the heir that Viserys had named, despite what Alicent thought that she heard in his last night. It's very important that we understand that there's more to it than just being queen or not. Uh, and you see her exemplify that throughout the entire ep rest of the episode as well. That's why she's resistant to go to war. And that's why her and Damon end up fighting at the at that point, and she realizes he didn't even know about the prophecy, um, although I guess we could have suspected that it would have been a pretty tightly held secret. But nonetheless, this Prince That Was Promised theme is a representation of the real reason for the struggle for the Iron Throne, at least as far as the Targaryens know. And I love that it was used for her in that moment it seemed perfectly appropriate and it really brought the whole season together for me i think i've rambled enough about the music let's get back to our panelists and our wheel of topics kelly what does it say 
No, it's fair. It's it's very tiny wheel to begin with, and it's very tiny text. Um, <laughs> uh, it landed on book ending from birthing to book pages. Ah, I see. Well, I'm going to have to put my glasses over my good eye. <laughs> oh, no. Just so I can see here. Um, oh, no. If you're not watching this, you're missing out a little bit, you guys. Yeah, <laughs> just do the YouTube thing, folks. You'll get a great uh, you'll get a great kick out of this. Oh, dear. All right. So uh, there's a couple of things. Uh, by the way, Kelly is responsible for almost all of our topics. I just reformatted them in, in slightly different ways. So, Kelly, why don't you tell us what the heck you're talking about? Uh, I was specifically referring to in the, seri- the series or season as a whole at this point. The, um, we opened the first episode with um, Emma's birthing scene. And uh, the final episode had Rhaenyra's birth gone wrong scene. And uh, that kind of stood out to me. And um, a lot of her experiences, I think, were reflective of what she learned from um, Emma's birthing scene. So, um, But that was not the only bookend in this um, episode. So we had a couple other mirrors or I don't know what you would call it, like reflections from uh, for us a couple weeks ago for these characters, you know, 20 years ago moments. So um, just kind of wanted to highlight some of those. If you guys had any caught any or had any thoughts on the birth um, parallel to start with. Well, I do know that, uh, you know, they, they said that they wanted the birth to be a significant focus you know this season obviously it was there were so many I really appreciated that they were able to show this wide variety of what can transpire during birth you know you you can uh, you know for some people you can have exceptionally easy births and you know I think Allison said something to that effect in the second season when uh, she kind of uh, stuck her foot in her mouth in relation to what had happened to Emma by saying like, oh, what's so bad? You know, that's a lot of people's experiences, but then there are so many others. And especially when you go back in time to where uh, medicine wasn't able to intervene in the way it is in modern times, uh, then you had this whole host of uh, different scenarios and uh, rather traditional uh, natural looking birth as Renee had in the uh, first episode where we jumped forward to the older actors that were covering those roles. And in those situations, it seemed like a lot of what they did portray felt very realistic, very natural. Um, So I I thought it was great. I thought it was a nice addition to what you usually see on the screen when it comes to to giving birth oh i don't think anything will be the same after going through emma's uh big scene that that was just absolutely brutal this was i mean this was intense but it was it was kind of like a, a mix almost of emma and lena at the same time it just like but Rhaenyra almost, it was weird. It was almost felt like to me, like she wanted the pregnancy to be over because she's like, I can't deal with another baby right now. I have this other gigantic thing to deal with. And it, it's like almost, she, yeah, it, it, I'm probably reading into it wrong, but it just felt like she was like, I can't deal with this right now. Mm. Well, and, and the whole situation seems to have triggered the 
the, right. the premature labor anyway. But there's something that was, did happen and that, that was very weird to me. And uh, I don't know if we can fill this in as book readers. I don't know how much we should fill in as book readers. Um, so we'll tread lightly here. But I did not get an explanation in the inside of the episode as to the intercutting of the shots of the wild dragon while uh, the baby was being stillborn. Kelly, you got an answer for me there? Oh, no, I just I thought it was because the um, birthing scene was also intercut with uh, Damon um, with the Kingsguard. And he was kind of uh, he had uh, Caraxes come along and, you know, punctuate all of his statements with uh, little roars and movements. So um, that plus Rhaenyra and Cyrax intercutting, I think, was in heavily illustrating the um emotional bond but also uh, obviously some psychic bond because uh Rhaenyra and Cyrax were nowhere near each other so that must be um some sort of magical bond that they have that okay. was being related to well see now you just filled in a big hole for me because I didn't even realize that was Cyrax Cyrax mm -hmm. so uh that was a big hole for me so thank you for doing that um so we're going with the emotional bond thing that uh Cyrex was actually reacting to what was happening to Rhaenyra rather than possibly the other direction uh perhaps it could also be um that Rhaenyra pulls strength from Cyrax and she was reaching out emotionally magically and Cyrax sensed it and responded and you know by yelling gave Rhaenyra strength there's a scene later when Rhaenyra and um Otto are on the stairway and Cyrax is behind and um Damon pulls out his sword and Cyrax screeches and um, that kind of snaps Rhaenyra out of her revere about thinking about Alicent when she's looking at the page and she just you know, tells all the boys, you know, no, we're not doing this. Um, and that can either just be Cyrax reacting to swords coming out or it could just be uh, that's Cyrax and um, Rhaenyra's connection, you know, my, my person's in danger or, you know, so there's a connection I think that could be um just emotionally evoked whether or not it's in, intentional and i want to hear john more later we'll talk about dragons and connection i think too because i think there's more going on with that as well but mm. in the birth scene specifically i think it could have been um either conscious or subconscious Rhaenyra reaching out or the other way around and cyrix just sensing and reacting yeah they did mention um in, in relation to that specific scene, uh, uh, since you brought up the dragon intercutting uh, part of it, that I feel like you know each each birth was supposed to have a certain type of uh, focus, and in this one uh, was that Rhaenyra was uh, kind of doing battle with her own body uh, was one of the things that was said in the kind of you know inside the episode type thing so i think that uh again there with um the targaryens and their dragonness which i think that uh you know we have a lot of focus in this particular episode on the unusual bond between them and how it works or doesn't work at times so i think that it was putting emphasis there and i do think that the cutting back and forth with uh with Damon and Craxus was was a good thing to do, just like in the first episode where you had the cutting back and forth between um, uh, 
the the tournament and uh, Emma giving birth, it's again that kind of that uh, if they were looking at this is as sort of uh, uh, Renea doing battle with her own body, they're again putting that kind of violent juxtaposition of the you know what was going on with the way that uh, uh, Damon was was using his dragon in a threatening kind of violent way as to how Renera was interacting with her dragon with the trauma she was going through. Let's talk about some other mirrors that we have here, though. We obviously have the torn page, the one that Renera tore out because she actually knew all the answers and gave to Allison. And Allison here tries to return the page because she thinks she has all the answers to give to Renera. So that was not received well. Uh, too little, too late from Miss Allison there. I think it gave Renera pause. I don't know if she would have, um, I mean, you know, she stopped to consider the offer then and uh, told Otto that she would uh, get back to King's Landing the next day. And I don't know that prior to being handed that page, if she would have gone that route or not. Mm. Okay. Well, I, she obviously doesn't feel threatened by any of Otto Hightower's people because uh, she just walked right through the middle of them this time around. Uh, the last time that she walked right through the middle of them on that bridge in Dragonstone back in episode two, uh, they were on her side. <laughs> Not, you know, it was everybody against Damon. This time around, she was the opposite side. What was Otto thinking? He could have taken care of everything right then and there. What was he thinking? I guess Cyrex was just too much to think about, huh? But both times, Rhaenyra ended that engagement without bloodshed, as she said, a good leader, a good ruler. That's that's the metric right there, I suppose. Uh, at least if you're Viserys or Viserys, who is, you know, got a hole in his eye just like I do right now, where a <laughs> sapphire sits. What's this Missarius stuff? <laughs> this isn't. This is where you put in reckless speculation. <laughs> Witness speculation. Witness speculation. So I, I was looking back at episode two uh, for comparisons because of the, uh, this the that was the first time we got to Dragonstone. So um, in that episode, there was the, the stair scene, but also after the stair, the stair bridge scene, um, Damon goes back into the uh, castle and talks with Missaria um, in that chamber, which actually is the same chamber I noticed that Rhaenyra has her um, sad birth in. And there was a conversation that Myceria had with Damon about how she made sure she would never have children. And I'm just saying, in that room, somebody who's maybe walking around with like magic emanating off of her with, you know, child uh, barriers, maybe uh, no live children, you know, could be born in that room. I don't know. Maybe Myceria did something naughty. John, you got uh, any thoughts about that? Is Masaria (laughs) is Masaria? Let's do this. Is Masaria even still alive, or is she just a pile of ash in the middle of King's Landing now? I have nothing, no reason to believe she is alive, but I feel like she is. Mm, Okay, Susan. Oh, I'm pretty sure she's alive. I think that she would have 
uh, as sneaky as she is, as clever as she is, I think she would have known better than to have put herself back in a situation, uh, a dangerous situation when she had just uh, proved that she might be a threat to uh, the powers that be. Kelly, is Susan smarter than you? Oh, always. Yes. Susan's <laughs> my first recruit to my podcast offshoot, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I lost them all now. I was hoping right. I could keep Susan. No, everybody's gone. Oh, well. <laughs> this podcast will be over after this finale talk. For every coronation, there must be a funeral. Almost sounds like four weddings and a funeral, but. Yeah. I, I had an issue with this topic, Kelly. Uh, no need to respond to this, but it's just like, no, that is not the case. Just within our last 80 years, we've had historically a king abdicate, abdicate, and then uh, another king be coronated. So you do not need to have a death in order to have a coronation. Uh, so this is uh, this is just, and the only reason I know this is because I do a podcast for the Double P called, called Podcast Lilibet that covers the crown. Otherwise, uh, Susan would have to be filling you in on all of that history because Susan knows more than you do. <laughs> At any rate. Uh, let's talk about this. Uh, what other instances have we had uh, where someone is actually putting a child to death and then uh, or putting a child to rest permanently and then having to accept a crown and and having everybody bow before them? Pretty wild. <laughs> it was nuts. It was, this was mostly just about the the Sarah's died and there was his he didn't really have a funeral, but his he did lead to a coronation. And then. Uh, you wouldn't think that Rhaenyra would have a funeral at her coronation as she's being notified late that this happened. And yet the tragedy, as uh, Rainey said in the episode, uh, the stranger casts a long shadow on this family. And she did indeed have to have a funeral to have her own coronation as well. Yes, that's awful. You, you know, Viserys couldn't even do that right. He got right. zero funerals and ended up with two coronations. Uh, I really love that scene, though. Uh, I thought that there was a lot uh, happening too. in there, especially musically. Um, I, I think a point that we'll bring up later when we talk about Damon is the way that he really insistently looked at that emblem on the crown uh, and how that relates to a later scene of his. Um, and Susan, I know you said you had something to say about Sir Eric as opposed to Sir Arik. Yeah, well, I... I found this scene very touching and the thing that I really felt strongly about it was it was such a contrast to the coronation that they had the previous week I mean that one was all about the pageantry you know the having the big crowd of uh, uh, all the, the commoners there to witness it and it was all about um, the uh, symbols of state with the well, I mean, there was a specific crown here too, but you know, using the conqueror's crown and Blackfire and all this to try and and it was really about proving the legitimacy of putting Aegon on the crown. But in this situation, I felt like there was such an emotional uh, beat to this coronation, and it wasn't. I mean, certainly the death of the child and the state emotional state that everybody was in at the moment added to that but i think that even besides that there was kind of a reverence there to what was going on and the way that people were treating rhaenyra and the fact that uh eric showed up with her father's crown and he gave that pledge to her 
and it was made in such a, a heartful way. Um, it was very, very touching. And I think that, you know, it, to me, it felt like everyone that was there witnessing it was greatly impacted by it. And in such a sincere way, that was such a contrast to the week before where we were, everything was just for show. Substance versus spectacle. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agreed on the, on the, uh, you know, sincerity bit, because those people weren't kneeling to her because they felt pressured or because they were herded in a room by a bunch of guards and a bunch of trumpets were blowing at them. But um, they really were there to be in service of Rhaenyra, who they saw as their queen. So that was a big moment, a big musical moment, too, which I covered in the the music analysis as well. Uh, John had more than anyone. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I, you know, I wondered when he was going to get there uh, because he, he was the one that actually gave Rainey's her way out accidentally. He was trying to steer her the other way. Uh, right. It took him a while to get the boat over there, I guess. John, what did you think about uh, this scene overall? I really liked it a lot. I mean, it reminded me a lot of Daenerys when she first kind of like when everyone kneels, kneels for her when she comes out of the fire, the dragons. and But this one had a different, it's obviously a lot more a lot more somber for some reason, even though they're both kind of similar things because you're losing, you're having a funeral and then the funeral pyre, she walks in and she comes out of it and it's like everybody's, but it's it's like almost like more victorious because of like the dragon miracle where this is more of like, you kind of get the miracle of, oh, my father's crown is here. I mean, because I mean, who would have ever imagined that someone would walk up with that? I mean, that is kind of, but in her eyes is probably miraculous She's got three out of the seven Kingsguard now on her side, which is kind of shocking. Like when you think about numbers like that, especially she's on Dragonstone. It's yeah. I mean, but the, I think my favorite part of the scene was actually watching uh, Rainey's not Neil. That I thought was very powerful. And I love that she's got the backbone to stick there. But I also appreciate the fact that Rhaenyra respects her enough not to like say much about her not kneeling yeah i loved uh rainy's constant evaluation of of rhaenyra throughout the episode you get when you think about where she came from and what was that episode two Mm -hmm. uh you know where just thinking of rhaenyra as a foolish girl and the way that she graduates and i know we've got a topic on the wheel so i won't say too much more kelly final thought about this because you were the one who brought the topic up anything uh that we missed that Kelly knows more than we do on. Uh, no, I think that was most of it. Yeah, the crown. Um, I think Sir Eric showing up um, and dem- how much he had to go through to get there and demonstrating that much um, loyalty, I think, to Rhaenyra would have inspired all of those people as well. I think there's um, an impressiveness to that. And I think that is um, when when you see one person going through so much to be loyal like it makes you inspired to be loyal to that person as well like it just it has a knock-on effect and i think that that really helped um her i think it also moved the the episode from this like somber really like visceral like child stillbirth moment to the rest of the episode which is about the struggle um that we're dealing with at that point um (laughs) <laughs> to the point where you almost kind of forget that Rhaenyra had a stillbirth that morning <laughs> but yeah. um you know it is what it is but the uh I think it was very inspiring um 
that he did that. Um, and that, yes, everyone kneeled. And yes, Rainey's just standing in the back evaluating. I love it. Um, and as we talk about like every other scene, she's doing it as well. So it started there. And um, John, I really, I like your point. John's right. Um, the fact that Rainier doesn't like force her to bow either. I looked it up and apparently Queens don't have to bow to Queens. It's a thing if you're of the same rank. So like mm-hmm. maybe it's acknowledging like if, Rhaenyra is technically, you know, good enough to be on the throne. Maybe it's yeah. Um, except for the fact that even after she's crowned, she continues to call her princess. Yeah, so does Coralus, but it's oh, I mean, it they, was Coralus. Never mind. I oh, apologize. Okay. It was Coralus. You're right. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, but it's also I don't know. Like she calls, she's her aunt or something. Kind of her her dad's cousin. I don't know. There's some also some like familiarity thing to, there too. I think you've called somebody princess for so long. I don't know if that's. I don't want to blame him too much for that just yet. <laughs> I would like to try and take a moment just to try and tie the last two topics we've talked about together. Uh, I think that one of the things that set up this coronation scene so beautifully was the painful, very painful scene of watching Rhaenyra prepare her baby, her unborn child uh, or stillborn child uh, for that funeral. Uh, I couldn't even imagine being a parent and and having to do that um and that's what made that emotional release for me that much bigger you know the one moment of hope in the episode so to speak uh so it was uh it was really beautiful kelly did you have something else to say you were pointing i did it reminded me of how they separated uh damon from we didn't really talk about damon's reaction to the to the um stillbirth and what we thought of it i i don't know if it was much deeper than this than he just he has trauma from his beloved wives dying during childbirth and um his brother's wife dying in childbirth his mom died in childbirth like maybe he just has you know hit i don't know he pulled a he pulled a lenore and just like walked out into the water and that was his way of dealing with it but yeah. like you know i fell for him too he he fell to his knees in that one quick little <laughs> shot as all of that was happening so that was tough but uh on the other hand uh, susan i think we can safely say that damon will not be putting uh, caraxes in front of sir eric i think that he's proven himself okay right i would hope so yeah (laughs) who knows with damon right we've got more to talk about him later on right oh my goodness kelly uh my eye patch is in the way what does it say I love that they landed on this one next because it is in sequential order. It's so weird how that happens. Um, It landed on uh, a question uh, that we did not realize from the previous series, that the painted table has a war setting. (laughs) Lights and buttons and whistles. Oh, my. I loved how they uh, explained on the inside of the episode. I'll just say this real quick, uh, that the documentary version of it. Uh, they explained the process that they went through. They took a mold from the original painted table that they'd used in Game of Thrones. Uh, and then they were going to just refinish it, make it look a little bit more. They contoured it more. And then it was a set, one of the set designers or one of the set people that said, oh, wouldn't it be cool if it had lights on underneath it? And uh, so they ended up having to redo the surface again so that it would reflect the light through it in the different places. It sounds like it was uh, a two or three phase process. 
I, you know, I don't know how feasible it actually is. Now, the idea was that they would actually have a fire inside the table somehow. And that was what was calling, causing the light. But then uh, you couldn't really do that. So they did the, the whole candle thing, which I don't know if it would have put out enough light to make it stand out or not in a real physical setting. However, uh, when you can add LED lights into the table itself to make it light up nice and pretty, uh, then it looks fantastic. Susan, what did you think of the painted table? I thought it was fantastic too. It was uh, just uh, a, a wonderful um, upgrade from from a table that was already pretty spectacular. You know, it was something that was, uh, I think, always a um, interesting feature that Martin had come up with as this uh, um, uh tool of egg on the conquerors as he could uh, use it for planning his invasion of uh of westeros so it was always a, a fun thing to have and uh you know when daenerys came uh when uh, uh stannis was using it except for maybe with having sex with melisandre on it but uh, that didn't oh you didn't like that part no, no, I didn't. Okay. <laughs> didn't seem like an appropriate use of the table. It seemed like it would be a really uh, painful surface for that. Anyway, I'm, maybe it was good that they didn't know this setting existed at that point. She would have burned her tushy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because she would have wanted the fire, right? <laughs> oh yeah, she probably would have wanted it. Yeah, probably yeah, wanted. yeah, yeah. But I, I thought it was it was great. I mean, everybody was commenting that you know it was almost like an additional character uh, in the in the show. Uh, I, everyone loves it. John, you into art? You into you into furniture art? What do you think? Uh, oh man, I, I I was thinking to myself, I'm like, hmm, I wonder what it would take to build that thing, because um, that would be pretty pretty wicked. Um, I don't think too many people probably be into it. And most people you'd have to explain it all the time. So it might be a little bit much, but no, I thought it was amazing. Um, in terms of having it light up, the only thing, the only technology I could imagine, but it's just kind of hard to take it back is the ma the maesters in Old Town, how they reflected the light into the, uh, I, I can't, is it it's just the Citadel? Uh, is that what they call that? That building that Sam was in? like how they reflected the light throughout the library. I mean, they could come up with some mirrors and stuff to probably reflect it, but it's just to get that many mirrors to get it that bright. Um, but I guess kind of what I was almost thinking of is not just the light was, I imagine it was dragon glass. And when it heats up, I would imagine some of it may almost have like a molten like glow to it is kind of what I was almost thinking. It did give off that impression for sure. But it was beautiful. I mean, it's a really, really cool effect. And it's kind of nice. I mean, I guess if you're talking about levity or just like cool for cool sake, this was actually one of those few things in the episode that we have. And Don't... functional. It was, yes. Yeah, very functional. Uh, in fact, I'm sure that the Warner Brothers store will have one for you to be able to purchase uh, <laughs> probably for, you know, about $5,000 sometime mm -hmm. in the middle of next year. And it'll take you six to eight months to get it delivered. <laughs> uh, but once you do get it, uh boy uh then you have a conversation piece it's not yeah. just it's not just a what, what do they call those a coffee table book it's a whole <laughs> coffee table <laughs> i i remember back during game of thrones that uh seeing somewhere some you know craftsperson 
who had uh, made their uh, you know replica of the of the table. Uh, so you know, but this is definitely a big upgrade from that. So it'll be a challenge for people to to come up with the replicas of this now. New project. I mean, they've got you know two years till the next season comes out to whittle away. <laughs> two years. A uh, quick thought just popped in my head. I know they're probably pot committed to this uh, ridiculous uh, family tree idea, but now that we have a war in the field, wouldn't you think it'd be cool transition to move the intro to just the painted table? I like, want that, John. I thought that since I saw it and I want it, especially because the way when they put the fire under and it lights up, like the, all that movement as the light spreads mm -hmm. it. And I mean, it made such a splash this this episode. I, I got to imagine they're considering it. And I mean, the bloodlines aren't going to change at this point. It's just going to be they are what they are. So right. I really hope for the next season that they do show the map because I've, I've felt like I've had to like pull up my old like quartermaster's map and figure out where everybody is and i liked having that at the beginning of every episode well speaking of intros kelly will be having an off-season podcast probably on kelly's dragons podcast <laughs> where she will go through the image uh intro image sequences uh episode by episode compare and contrast so be looking for that on Kelly's Dragons podcast or maybe on the Before the Dragon podcast feed. Probably uh, that one. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give a little plug to History of Westeros. They have said that they were going to come up with um, a, uh, a video sometime in the near future where they've, they've held off going through that intro. They're going to go through it and do a step by step to show how it changed from episode to episode. So that should be coming out soon. Uh, Kelly, you got to beat them to the punch. We can't. We if we can't be best, we got to be first. You got that? <laughs> um, I mean, I'm going to do it for myself for fun anyway, so I might as well, well put if, something if, together. If it's for fun, then you know we'll see it whenever you get done with it. Don't don't put yourself under any pressure or anything. Just do it or you're fired. Yeah. Uh, I'll get it done by next I, week. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, no, we, no, want, no. we want to you share it Saturday. So I did Saturday. Put a, Shush, shush. I put a um a picture in the doc that if you want to add this to the video, Matt, I can give you a better quality one. But it does have an overshot of the table and everyone who's around it at this point, because I was confused as to who these two new characters were. Have we seen um Celtigar or Santon before? No. But okay. should I care about them? <laughs> and I mean, at this point in the game, should I actually care about them? I guess we should, since they're one of the few stranded, you know, it's kind of almost kind of like Gilligan's Island. They're all stranded on this island together and they've, they're mm -hmm. all they, they've got for each other. Uh, so I suppose I should care about them at some point. But uh, so what were their names again? It's uh, Lord Simon Staunton. Um, you can that he you can't see very well, but um, I also have a, a screenshot I can send you. It's of his um, his. House sigil is a um, black and white checker or gray and black checker with wings, um, or uh, it looks more like they might have the whole bird. I can't really tell um, if you zoomed in, but he has the full collar um, sigil, uh, like yeah. the medallion that goes all the way around and then just has the single sigil. Um, the other guy, Celtigar, he just has like two clasps that have little lobsters on them. <laughs> Crabs. Crabs, crab. sorry, crabs. Yes, yes, yes. I always Susan think of like knows more than you do. She does. Yes, I'm like looking at a picture of them, and they they look like uh, they obviously are crabs. Yes. Um, <laughs> I always think of like Phoebe from Friends, where you're like he's her lobster. Anyway, 
<laughs> so, uh, but these two, yeah. So the Celticars, maybe Susan can give me more background on this. Uh, I didn't uh, do too much. I've just understand that they are the other Valerian family. They are Valeria from Valeria and they kind of get shafted a lot, but it seems to work out for them because when you don't um, put yourself out there that much, maybe you aren't put in danger as often, but uh, <laughs> they're the, the lesser known old Valeria family. Right, true. I think that uh, that uh, is a shame that they don't get that recognition. Uh, even um, uh, Corliss was talking about uh, the uh, Valerians and the Targaryens being the only families from from Valeria, and here we have another house that is definitely from there as well. So they they should get a little bit more recognition, though. Uh, you have a good point there, Kelly. Maybe by not getting that they are able to uh, avoid some problems. <laughs> uh, and the Stauntons, um, I don't know too much about them. I apologize. Maybe we'll just go back through all these battle plans at another time. But like at this point, this is what I'm talking about where the, the episode moved so fast and all these new characters showed up that they were just going through names and houses and lores that who might declare for them and who wouldn't. And I didn't realize Damon mentioned both of these guys. And I'm like, oh, they're the guys standing next to him right now. <laughs> like, I didn't realize that. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot going on at this table. So anyway, I you know can you can see who's all standing around the table. Okay. Uh, one one other quick thing about the Celtic arts, they have a really interesting Valerian steel weapon. Um, I'm pretty sure. Uh, it's an axe, up just right? To verify, but yeah, yeah, that's I think that's the only mention of uh, there. There's a few unique Valerian steel weapons that we hear of throughout the books, but this is the only axe that we hear of. Yeah. Excellent. Pretty cool. Uh, anything else here? Or are we ready to move on? Did anybody have any thoughts about the battle plans or just the fact that Damon was taking control? Uh, I, I heard somebody mention the fact that uh, he, uh, you know, he was kind of a motor mouth there going on and on and on and on about all his plans when he'd been so quiet during so much of the, uh, of the uh, uh, whole season, you know, so many of, the scenes with him where it was just, he didn't have to say a word it was just uh the way he would look at somebody you know? and now here he's probably said more than he did in the entire season all just in one episode well let's go ahead as long as you want to stay on the battle plans and what have you let's go ahead and and we'll uh kind of weave this topic in there uh which was also on the wheel but we can uh just kind of take everything in whatever context it comes who why are uh everybody the high towers the targaryens why are they such huge fans of sesame street who who is grover and and why is it that he's so important today or in this episode damon says the riverlands are essential because evidently nobody in the west is going to go against the lannisters and the lannisters you know, Rhaenyra kind of poo-pooed on uh, the the Lord of Casterly Rock, uh, and Thailand is obviously a fan of the High Towers. So I guess you start off from the Riverland to the in the Riverlands from there, um, and this Grover Tully, um, who I just keep wanting to say he talks like this when we see him, but <laughs> I uh, feel like uh, he must be important. Uh, can anybody tell me anything about Grover that isn't going to be spoilery? Anybody? He's fickle. Well, Apparently we do know that. Fickle. We know he's fickle. 
<laughs> we heard that in this episode. I can't imagine growing, you know, every time I think of Grover, I, I love George for doing that, uh, for, for naming certain characters after Muppets. But uh, I never want to use fickle in the same sentence as Grover. Uh, it's just part of my childhood. I'll, I'll never, uh, I'll never get over uh, Grover being so wonderful uh, on Sesame Street. So, what do I do about this? How do I, how do I process this information that Grover is now fickle? I'll tell you what I thought. When, you know, when we first got those names, when what was it? When the the Ice and Fire book came out, the World of Ice and Fire, I think is when. Uh, we were introduced to those names for those characters. First, you know, it sounded really silly, and I thought, oh, why did he decide to do that? I know he throws in a lot of pop culture and things, but uh, over time, I've grown to really like them. And one of the things uh, that you know, if you can, if you can get yourself past, I mean, I, I'd always know the tide of the Muppets is there, and and like I say, I've grown to like that. But just the names themselves of Oscar. Grover and Elmo, before they were co-opted by the Muppets, those are all traditional names that, you know, you probably don't hear people use too much of anymore, but they have, you know, historic, uh, they're all from different uh, ethnic groups. I think uh, uh, one of them is, is Celtic and the other one is Italian. And so, I mean, you know, they've got, uh, they're, they're real historic name so mm. i kind of like them well susan thank you so much because now you've completely ruined ruined my childhood again uh because <laughs> now i realize that jim henson was nothing but a thief thank you oh. very much uh I, and i love when george throws stuff uh into his own stories i mean may, mm -hmm. maybe not the muppets maybe that was uh i'm sure it was his i you know an idea that him and and elio and linda kind of threw around or whatever but uh, at the same time, uh, you get a football game in a couple of, in a couple of pages of uh, Dance of Dragons, right? Uh, I think that's yeah, the Three Stooges are in uh, Game of Thrones when uh, uh, Tyrion's being kidnapped and taken to the the Eyrie. You've got uh, characters that are named after the Three Stooges, you know, just with crazy spellings, but you know, it's the same same names. Yeah, and I love the Battle of the Lone Star and the Giant. Um, <laughs> good old Dallas versus the New York Giants, baby. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. So he, he puts a lot of that stuff in there. I mean, he's got some Grateful Dead references from his favorite band, uh, and different, uh, you know, uh, songs and singers and stuff like that. So, I mean, it, it's it, all over the place. I think I like that. I like that fact that not only does he rely on world history and mythology, but, uh, you know, he throws in the pop culture, too. So it's just, you know, a mix of all sorts of stuff. Absolutely. We, Rhaenyra says that, you know, because her own mother is from the Vale, uh, they won't go against her. But might they be inclined to go against Damon? Isn't there a Royce still floating out there that maintains that he killed his wife, his first wife? It's true. Or was yeah. he killed at the, was he one of them that was hurt real bad at the wedding? No, no, no. But only, only Joffrey, or yeah, Joffrey was. Uh, Joffrey was the only casualty of the wedding. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it's it also the Royces don't don't rule over the Erie. The Aarons do. 
So the Aaron's are going to would call her Barons and the Royces wouldn't have much to say. So they can put a stink up, but the Aaron's are the ones that call in the shots. And, and so to Rhaenyra's point, they're not going to turn down family. So likely they'll, they'll call for Rhaenyra or they'll, they'll support Rhaenyra's claim. And it's the, uh, the Aries led by a woman at the moment and to deny uh, Rhaenyra's birthright would be to deny her own uh, legitimacy as a ruler. Oh, so it's all political then. She, all it's, right. it's a self-interested choice, but it's still luckily uh, her uh, her oath was a, her original oath anyway, or her father's oath, perhaps. All right. Now, this is it was all down to just uh, being a relative. You know, you could have said the same thing about Storm's End. So, yeah, that was the other thing I was thinking most of, like between their two claims, like Aegon has half as you know half of the the ones that Rhaenyra could claim Aegon could claim because they have the same dad you know mm-hmm. <laughs> that's interesting all right so I want to go back to the table one more time but this is Please. a little later in the episode when we have our official nuke count uh, this right. is where everybody sits down uh, and the uh, these are not peace talks these are about we've got this many and they've got that many so by my count as I show you all my uh sapphire or i try to hide it from you uh <laughs> the blacks have serax caraxes vermax malis uh they did have erex they have no longer have erex by the end of the episode they have taraxis which is the first we've heard mention of that but evidently joffrey does have his dragon uh the youngest one uh we have bela's moon dancer uh sea smoke is still over on Driftmark, which surprises the heck out of me if lanor is still alive why didn't sea smoke follow him uh also uh vermithor uh and silverwing who are unclaimed are at the dragon mount and dragonstone also has oh wait three wild dragons because there's nothing like a nuclear bomb without a guidance system although maybe we found that out at the end of the episode also um so uh, that's pretty stiff. Now, as far as we know, uh, and I think we've seen all of three of the, well, I know we've seen at least two of them. Uh, maybe we've seen all three. Uh, we know that Aegon has some fire. Uh, we know, of course, that Aemon, who my costume is patterned after, except he's Aemon Valerian Strong, uh, he has Vagar. And then uh, Helena also has uh, her dragon who has been mentioned. I think maybe we saw her. Dreamfire at Driftmark for Lena's wedding or wedding funeral, weddings and funerals. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, maybe we saw her there. I'm not sure. And I think when um, Amond went down into the um, dragon pit, uh, he got scared by, I think, Dreamfire. Okay, that was Dreamfire. I can't um, think of who else it would be. Nice way to start off a potential marriage, a betrothal right uh your your future wife's dragon doesn't like you very or, oh no no uh, amen no that was, was amen that did that oh, you're right but it was all Aegon's fault true sure. uh, they conspired <laughs> <laughs> uh so uh seems to me it doesn't really matter how many you've got if you got vagar it's about how big they are right it's not about the it's not about the number of bombs you have it's about the size of the blast radius um yeah. that's what i was thinking like when you mentioned moon dancer i mean that dragon isn't even old enough to ride yet nor taraxes i would i would imagine right joffrey's dragon would have to be smaller than moon dancer 
Yeah, you would think so. What else we got on this? Anything else about plotting around the pretty table? I, I kind of hated that they gave that um, speech to uh, Damon because that was what I remembered most from Rainey's in the books. But I think it makes the most sense with where they're going with Damon's character and his obsession with dragons um, that I kind of forgave it. And they gave um, Rainey's a lot of cool uh, lines and shots this episode that kind of made up for it for me. And girl was just in her armor the whole time. So I was like, all right, all right. You know, and plus he named Maylies and got a eyebrow raise from <laughs> from Rainey's in that moment too which we wouldn't have gotten if she was listing all of the dragons so nitpick but I'll allow it because they they did it well <laughs> he also talked about the eggs he's incubating a and score. again again that's like what's the point of that you know those, those dragons aren't going to be even if they do hatch you know how long is it going to be before those dragons are useful for warfare I was going to say they're just going to be minnows for the fish, right? <laughs> Maybe uh, they could think about them as as valuable items that could be used if, just for their value. Yeah. Oh, my. Selling baby dragons to people over in the triarchy. They get yeah. allies. No, no, no. I don't think they'd want to do that, but maybe like part of a marriage pact or something. You, you get a combination deal. You get a Targaryen and an egg. <laughs> You take the you take this Targaryen, and we'll throw in a dragon. Well, you know, a- eggs for all of your offspring who are going to be part Targaryen. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But um, he the camera did focus on um Reyna when um Damon said that uh, sea smoke is uh on Driftmark and uh Vermithor and Silverwing um are without riders, and then there are the three wild ones somewhere in there. It. it focused on uh reina and i felt kind of bad for the girl <laughs> like yeah she's she is without a dragon i thought that was to imply that she needs to get on it and find her yeah one. exactly yeah. yeah but it's scary well but <laughs> wasn't she the one that was like all upset that her egg wasn't gonna hatch i mean uh, with lena yeah, like five years ago how long has it been six years ago well then she's probably ready for one Two or three years She's ago. I don't know. Also, the one who uh, seemed to have the intention of claiming Vagar. So, yeah. Yeah, but she snoozed and loosed. Yeah. Right. But I mean, <laughs> if she had that intention, then you think that she would be fine with, you know, another large dragon. Vagar's mine. Mine. That's true. I'm just playing, but it is possible that, you know, they played into her character that while everyone around her is claiming dragons, she's scared of them and but feels the pressure to get one, but like kept putting Mm. off claiming Vagar and then it wasn't an option anymore. Mm. Yeah. Right. They had that line with her mother where, uh, you know, she was concerned that she wasn't going to be accepted Mm -hmm. to stay if she didn't have a dragon and and that her father didn't pay as much attention to her as her sister potentially because she doesn't have a dragon so like you know i guess that stuff is being asserted so we'll see with her but i did you know they, they are trying to you know highlight her lack of dragon for us i think in that scene um but yeah he concluded by saying that you know if they if they count all of the un the riderless dragons and the wild dragons the blacks have 13 to the greens three ah and see the the showrunners have said the total is 17 so we do have 
one That's missing. Unaccounted. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Maybe the showrunners can't count. Spin the wheel. <laughs> You're so mean. <laughs> Dedicated to George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire book series. Listeners, you have no idea how many times in that short segment that Matt personally attacked me. He cut me deep just now. And the HBO Game of Thrones franchises. Holly, uh, your chance to get back at me for all those times that I've treated you bad. I hope whoever the composer is, they use a piano a lot in the music. (laughs) (laughs) Get him. Oh, you got me. You got Mm -hmm. me. I hated the piano in Game of Thrones. You're listening to Before the Dragon. Don't tell me what to do. Do, 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 do. Moving on. You thought I forgot. I did not forget. It's time for a top five. John, Susan, and Kelly's name are on a wheel. I'm going to hit the screen refresh here. The wheel is now spinning, but I have not hit start yet. I will choose because my name's not on the wheel. Then one of these lucky names will give us a top five dragons. We'll do dragons first. Is it just on this show, Matt, or is it all dragons? Just this show. Okay. Doesn't matter. You don't have to worry about it, John. It is Kelly. Kelly is winner. Kelly will give us her top five. What are the chances? Oh, my gosh. Hang on just a second. Let me stop sharing so we can get a good close-up on you as I, you give us our top five. Kelly, mm-hmm. the fifth best dragon in House of the Dragon this year. Sea smoke. I picked. Sea smoke was interesting to see, uh, and I got him wrong, and I felt bad, and so I I went back and I stared at sea smoke so many times at this point. (laughs) I could tell you sea smoke from a mile away now. (laughs) Number four. Oh, Vermax. I was like, who did I pick? (laughs) I forgot. (laughs) Oh. Um, but, uh, but I don't think I meant Vermax. I think I meant Arax, the one that died. That was yeah. Arax, right? Okay. Yeah, that was Arax. Yeah, I meant Arax. So Arax, oh, that's why it didn't make sense to me. Arax, um, he was, he tried so hard, our sweet little angel baby. Um, yeah, that was sad. <laughs> and, uh, but he did have some moves and he got one off on, uh, an old Vagar grandma. <laughs> yeah. Right in the eye. Got him right in the eye. Got a, got old Vagar right in the eye. Poor Arax. We knew you too little, for sure. Number three. Holly, don't kill me, but I did put Caraxes here. <laughs> Noodle Boy would be higher if Holly was making this list, I know for sure. Holly doesn't care. She's dead. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> rip. rip. <laughs> this, one's, this one's for you, Holly. <laughs> Rest in peace, Holly. Your dragon is number three. Number two. Uh, our beautiful Cyrax. Uh, was the first dragon we saw uh, got me the most hype for the show. And I and I love that uh, connection she has with Rhaenyra. Wow. My mind is going to places it shouldn't be going as I ask, what is your number one? I love Maylee's the Red Queen. 
I think her uh, crowns are beautiful. I think she. What did I kill Matt? Did Matt die? Apparently, Matt's rolled over. We've lost him forever. Who did you think? <laughs> I... Oh God, what has happened? Vagar? No Vagar? No. Why Vag- Vagar? That no. hoary beep? No. <laughs> I'm so sorry. What kind of a list is this? Maybe the, the Red Queen, who we saw for five minutes scream. <laughs> she, but you could tell it was her as soon as you saw her. I was like, of course that's the Red Queen. Those wings, that girl is glorious. She's red. She squeezed through that door. She used magic, I swear to God, but <laughs> she's awesome. Matt would have hated my list. <laughs> I'm sorry, Matt. Matt is also dead. Holly, uh, Matt. Right? Holly, I'm just... coming for you. Okay, we have one other top five lists to go through time to share the screen again who will be giving us our top five characters for the season let's find out (laughs) kelly i can't believe it it happened twice i can't my god She's got ravioli in her mouth. <laughs> Susan, Kelly has ravioli in her mouth. What were your top five characters for House of the Dragon season one? Oh, dear. Okay. Um, so I'm going to go in reverse order, too. Number five. Okay. Uh, my number five was Jace. I liked the uh, idea that we were meeting a, a serious young man who's shown a lot of good qualities and could be a potential good candidate for the throne. Also still living because he got to go on the vacation to the air, uh, to the Vale and to Winterfell. Excellent. Right. Number right. four. Helena. I really enjoyed Helena. You know, such a difference from the story in that uh, she's a unique personality. Charlie has any personality at all in the in the book, and so we ha- meet this uh, Targaryen with the unique. It appears to be powers of prophetic dreaming. So yeah, Helena. Excellent. Number three. Number three. Damon. I had to have Damon in my list. He is, you know, the this crazy wild card who loves chaos and has been, you know, the steam sealer in almost every steam he's in. I what kind of a person are you, Susan? I, I I'm judging you. <laughs> yeah, how could I? Okay. Number two. <laughs> Number two, Viserys. Again, such a surprise. You wouldn't, I wouldn't think when I was reading Fire and Blood that uh, he would have been such an important character that made such an impression and, and was such a, a, just a big deal. This, this series emotionally, you know, really tugging at the heartstrings. You really felt for this man. Excellent. I love the fact that the uh, that the actor found that uh, the love for Emma was the uh, uh, key to his story. Yes, that was beautiful. 
Um, yeah. that, that was a great way to approach that. All right. Yeah. We've been waiting. Here we go. The uh-huh. best character in House of the Dragon in season one, the number numero uno. Well, I don't think it'll be too much of a surprise. I picked Rhaenyra. I think that, you know, she's one of the key characters for the whole story. I think both actors who played her did a fantastic job. And I am, again, much more intrigued with her than I was in the books. And I'm really looking forward to what's going to happen with her now that she's been through so much. And let me just give one honorable mention. I actually had a number six. I just wanted to throw out there that. Uh, well, I outside looking Eric, in, go ahead. Yeah. Eric Cargill. I threw him in there at the bottom. It's such a small role, but he played such an integral role here. This last that again, added to the emotionality when he brought the crown. So he's kind of the uh, wild card character who, who I'm I'm in uh, in love with this character. Yeah, if it isn't for him, then Rainey's doesn't get out. Probably she's probably still locked up. She doesn't get to yeah. get uh, get the word out more quickly so that they can be prepared. Um, good call, right. good call. And I like course, his right. voice. I like yeah. Eric's voice. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that was great. John, okay. your number five dragon. Oh, my number five dragon. Mm-hmm. Your number oh. five dragon. Wow, this this I get put on the spot. I thought we were done with top fives. All right, so top five. <laughs> it's only at the top of the dock. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you said it at the, the beginning. No, I know, but I thought we were only doing this once. I thought it was like the kind of the pick of the wheel, oh, so, and then we so got, got it. Got <laughs> so it. you waited until he was all this time, it on the and spot. then because I was, I was just gonna wing it because they're all they're all equally number five great, dragon, so John. Your number Caraxes. five dragon, Caraxes, number five. Noodle boy. Excellent choice. Excellent choice. Your number four character. Number wow, number four character. Um dragon uh keeper number three. (laughs) Kelly, what is John? (laughs) Sorry. Well, he's right. Um, I'm gonna have to go look it up, but that's uh dragon sounds right. John, you're number three dragon. Number three dragon is going to be um, Sea Smoke. Nice. Number two character. Lord Beesberry. Excellent choice. <laughs> Love that. Excellent choice. And your number one dragon is? The the only one that needs to be on top is Vermithor. Oh. Do you see those? You see those chompers? There's nobody's <laughs> getting past Vermithor. No one. Oh my. Nice. Tell me Vagar was on the list. Somewhere no, in there. Not on mine. I, I, I'm not a Vagar fan. I've, Susan, help me out here. Lady Visania and I are not co- simpatico. She wasn't on my list either. 